Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Title IX in the Crosshairs, the 50th anniversary of women's equality in education. Please welcome Sarah Parshall Perry, Senior Legal Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Mies Center. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I join you today, not only with the Heritage Foundation, but also as former senior counsel at the Department of Education under the previous administration. So today's topic of discussion is one that is exceptionally near and dear to my heart, as I am also the mother of a teenage daughter who benefits from the protections of Title IX in public education. Today we celebrate the golden anniversary of Title IX, the 50th anniversary, the passage of the education amendments of 1972's Title IX, the federal law prohibiting sex-based discrimination in any federally funded educational program. Title IX leveled the playing field for girls and women and has increased women's participation in high school sports 10 times over. It was hailed as a feminist triumph when it was enacted. But in a painful twist of irony, the same law that has once provided a platform for female advancement has just been sacrificed just today to President Joe Biden's radical political agenda under the guise of equality. Under this administration, gender identity is a substitute for biological sex, and someone's subjective sense of self-identity is enough to invade the spaces, programs, admissions, and teams specifically dedicated and preserved for women for their guarantee of equality. Thanks to the rule change that has just today happened and an impending rule change on athletic eligibility and single-sex sports, the interpretation and application concerning that issue is right in the crosshairs and the sex discrimination of old is new again. Today we celebrate women's athletic achievements, but we also sound the alarm on what's at stake. To kick off our event is the first woman to represent Tennessee in the U.S. Senate, formerly a representative for Tennessee's 7th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, an ally for women, conservatism, and common sense, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Thank you so much. My goodness, how delighted I am to be here to visit with you all for just a little bit today. Indeed, the 50th anniversary of Title IX is something that we should be celebrating. I know that there are many women that are a part of my team who have benefited from Title IX. I know that there are probably many of you in this room who have also benefited, and you know that you would not have been able to accomplish what you did accomplish if not for that level playing field that Title IX gave to you. I think the more important question for discussion today is what is Title IX going to look like for the next 50 years? And how should we be protecting Title IX and that level playing field that gives women that opportunity to compete, to excel, to win? Earlier this week, I spoke about this on the Senate floor because I think many of my colleagues have lost sight of the answer to that question. When I think about Title IX, I think about my granddaughter, and now that guarantee of a level playing field has already changed in so many ways, and I want her to know 
what that level playing field is because her mother benefited from that level playing field. And it is so exciting to be able to watch your children and your grandchildren face adversity, learn how to overcome that adversity, learn how to be coached, how to be receptive to that coaching, how to make a commitment, how to work hard, and then how to be a gracious winner and how to be a good sportsman if you lose. And those are lessons that you learn. Now, Title IX works because it accepts the premise that men and women are different. But men and women are entitled to equal treatment under the law. This version of equality, of course, is totally incompatible with the left's war on common sense. They just cannot accept it. For a long time now, but especially since Joe Biden took office, you have seen radical liberal activists project doubt into concepts that are so deeply understood and commonly held that you and I would consider these concepts to be a foundation of the working nature of our society. Most recently, we saw the left take aim at the very foundation of Title IX itself, and they've taken aim at what it means to be a woman. A Supreme Court justice nominee really hesitated after I asked her to define the word woman. How dare she do that? It just might offend some of those on the left. But then, like clockwork, after she hesitated, the mainstream media jumped in to give her cover and to go about trying to explain how difficult it is to define the word woman. Who knew we were so complex? But, and out of context, this looks like one little battle in a, an absurd culture war. But if you zoom out, and you look at the political landscape, you can start to piece together that the left is playing a long game. And indeed, we've seen another part of that long game presented today. As this administration, on the anniversary of Title IX, says, oh, but wait, there's more. We're going to change Title IX. They're trying to create a paradigm shift that will allow them to redefine words in their political narrative and in their image, the way they want it. And then they want to use that narrative and those words that they have redefined to undercut and to change legal standards and legal terms and legal definitions. This is all part of their pattern, and you all are going to have a great panel where you can discuss some of that approach and how that is going to affect that next 50 years. In short, if we're not careful, they'll use Title IX to turn around and destroy Title IX. And you can see that from how they have gone from one small battle to another small battle and their comments today, and then how they're going to take Title IX and use that to destroy that very thing. And we are seeing this as you look at how female athletes are being forced to compete 
against male athletes. So that's your playing field. And then you look at the broader political argument, which is a subset of the cultural argument. That's what I mean by zooming out and beginning to look at this holistically. Title IX exists to protect opportunities for women and girls, something that is especially relevant in a field where success depends on your physical ability. By allowing the left to torture the definition of woman so that it includes men, we strip those protections away and we leave young women right back where they started, which is on an uneven playing field where they will almost always lose. That is where we were 50 years ago. And if the left gets its way, that is where we will be starting now. Female athletes are losing medals to biological men, but they're also losing scholarships and other opportunities because the leagues they compete in have essentially rendered Title IX moot. The only way, the only way to reverse this trend and preserve opportunities for women and girls is to keep speaking out. And it is going to be up to each and every one of you to speak out and to talk about this as a war on common sense, to talk about it not in single shots, but talk about it as a war that is taking place. The political, the political complications, the societal complications that come from redefining words, changing legal terms, making a point that what they're doing is using Title IX to destroy Title IX. I know that you all are going to have a wonderful, robust discussion about Title IX and about how we work together to protect it so that 50 years from now, we don't have women saying, I was the fastest woman, but I lost out to a guy. Thank you all for letting me be with you. Well, that's a picture about where we're going and a little bit of regulatory background. Just today, the administration has released it is its version of Title IX's new rule. We anticipated all of the changes that would be in it, but they have separated out the issue very contentiously of athletics, mostly, I believe, because the polling on that particular issue indicates the political heat involved in that discussion. However, they have promised us that they will engage in future rulemaking. So our discussion today, while largely limited to the issue of athletics, is still very germane. And there still exists the possibility that those who identify as women can file Title IX complaints because they have not been permitted to compete on women's sports teams. So we are truly in the line of fire on this. But I'm going to introduce three women who will put a very emphasis, very strong emphasis on the particularly personal nature of this fight and what it looks like in reality to be waging war against an issue that has completely voided common sense. Christiana Kiefer is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where she is a key member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. She has worked to defend constitutionally protected freedom of churches, religious schools, and Christian ministries to exercise their faith without government interference. But since joining the Center for Conscience Initiatives, she has worked on some of the country's most groundbreaking cases, protecting the right of women and girls to fair athletic competition, including Sewell versus Connecticut Association of Schools and Hecox versus Little. 
Chelsea Mitchell was for four years a high school runner and made it to the state championships every one of those years. As a track athlete, she was the fastest girl in the state, but in her junior year, she lost four of the state titles she had earned to males who identified as females. She's joined today by her mom, Christy Mitchell. So with that, I'm going to introduce our three women and invite them to the stage. Welcome to all three of you. Um, I have a distinct appreciation, Christy, of your unique role in this as a mom. I too am a mom of a young woman, and I see your daughter's story as being something very unique and sort of eliciting a type of individual pain that cannot be experienced by those who don't have a daughter in this fight. Can you tell me a little bit about what's at stake for you in this battle? Well, for me, it's really about fixing the policy in Connecticut and uh, rolling this back so that it doesn't have to happen to anyone else. Watching Chelsea and the other girls in Connecticut go through this for not just one year or one season, but for four years, um, this went on. And it was so disrespectful to the, to the girls that were running in these races and um, horribly hard to watch it take place meet after meet every major championship that Chelsea ran in, she was running against biological males. So Chelsea, let me ask you a little bit. We're going to rewind the clock and I want to ask how you got involved in the sport of running and give us some of your accolades. We have a sense of exactly how successful you were in your chosen sport. Yeah, so I was an athlete pretty much my whole life. Um, I kind of did soccer and basketball when I was little, but my older sister, um, she was on the track team when I was a freshman. She was the captain, and so I wanted to be able to play with her for you know her last year, for my first year. Um, so I decided to join the track team, um, and I kind of realized I was really good at it. Um, over my high school career, I had 11 state championship titles. Um, I was a New England champion in the 100. I was named Connecticut Athlete of the Year in 2019. I was All-American in the long jump, so I've had some good success, um, but... I did lose those four state championships in my junior year. So tell us what it was like competing against biological males. Give us a window into exactly what that feels like to realize that there's a possibility that you could lose to someone whose biology gives them unique and distinct advantages physiologically. Right. I mean, this happened, like my mom said, at like every major meet that I was participating in. Um, my freshman year, it was the state open. I was um, a freshman. I was running in the 100, and I was bumped from 6th to 7th because of a biological male. So I missed out on meddling. I missed out on advancing for the New England Championship as a freshman, which was a um, pretty, pretty big deal. Um, I was not recognized as the fastest freshman in the state. Instead, that went to a biological male. Um, and just kind of got worse from there. I was bumped out of um, bigger meets. I was bumped out of medals and um, you know, placing in the finals higher. And then my junior year came, um, and I started losing those state championships and that was really bad to be able to get to that level to race for a state championship um, and to lose it essentially um, to a biological male to someone I know has an advantage um, and it was really demoralizing to line up against these athletes meet after meet um, and to continue to lose. So the case to which Chelsea's referring is Sewell versus Connecticut Association of Schools. And that, of course, was your case, Christiana. So tell us a little bit about the case itself and where it stands now. Sure. Well, Connecticut passed a policy that, as Chelsea and Christie mentioned, allowed biological males to come in and compete in women's sports. And so over the course of Chelsea's high school career, two biological males came in and dominated the female category. And collectively, they won 15 women's state championship titles. They set 17 new individual meet records, records that I still have female athletes in Connecticut today that tell me I would have broken a record except they set it so high it's impossible for us girls to break it, to meet it. So these young women reached out. They were looking, They frankly, they first contacted school administrators. They looked for help from state representatives. No one was willing to listen and to assist. Reached out to women's organizations, crickets. So Alliance Defending Freedom had the privilege of filing the first federal lawsuit in the nation on behalf of female athletes under Title IX, asking a federal court to, frankly, enforce Title IX as originally written and ensure that the promise of Title IX for female athletes was delivered to them. 
the girls were losing out on podium spots, advancement opportunities, recognition, and yes, the implication for potential scholarship opportunities as well. All of them Title IX violations. So we filed that federal lawsuit. Uh, COVID slowed the courts way down. <laughs> but you know, much to our disappointment, the federal court in Connecticut looked at this and said, girls, your losses don't really matter. It's really not that big a deal. Just move on. The guys have graduated. Don't worry about it. And that's wrong. Like, what message does that send to young women that says that your losses do not matter? So we've appealed that to the Second Circuit. We are waiting on oral argument to be scheduled. But, you know, we intend to take this as far as it needs to go, because what happened to the young women in Connecticut and in other states is just wrong. It's a clear violation of Title IX, and we intend to, to press forward. My understanding is as well that the lower court judge made a point of indicating that the ADF team was misgendering the opposite uh, students. So obviously the judge had his own unique perspective on the situation at hand. So makes you wonder whether or not that was a fair adjudication of the lower court uh, motions practice. But I have to tell you, I am aware that ADF is not just litigating the Sewell case, which is groundbreaking in its own right, but there are other cases that you all are handling. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about those? Yes, well, in order to do that, I'd love to give you a little bit of background on the legislation that's happening across okay. the country. So as you may have noticed, 18 states have passed legislation protecting women's sports, specifically designed to ensure that if you have a women's sports category, only biological females compete in that category. I mean, groundbreaking, right? So it's been really exciting to see lawmakers step up to the plate and take on this issue. Idaho was the first state in the country to do so in 2020. It's been really exciting to see that happen. But rather predictably, the ACLU immediately turned around and challenged that women's sports law in federal court. And so Alliance Defending Freedom has intervened in that case alongside a couple of female athletes in Idaho who competed against and lost to a male athlete in their collegiate level sports as well. Similar to what you saw with the Leah Thomas situation, right? splattered all across the news in the last couple of months. So we're currently intervening on behalf of female athletes in the state of Idaho and West Virginia as well. And only just recently, the states of Indiana and Utah have been sued over their Save Women's Sports laws. So this is being litigated across the country. But I want you to know there is significant momentum to protect women's sports. Like we see what's happening with Chelsea. We see what happened with Leah Thomas and the young women at UPenn and others who were silenced and lost championship titles. And the American people don't want, don't want this. They're not going to stand for it. And so it's really encouraging to see the momentum here. So with the patchwork of state legislation and all of the litigation that's transpiring, what is, in your mind, the likelihood that one of these will eventually make it to the Supreme Court? So we get sort of a dispositive statement on whether or not Title IX means what it says it means. I think it's extremely likely that one of these women's sports cases makes it up to the Supreme Court. They were eager to take a, a parallel, I guess, a transgender case that ended up going back to the Fourth Circuit. So I do think there's an appetite for the court to take one of these cases. I think we like our chances at the Supreme Court, uh, but I hope we don't have to go that far. In the interim, women across the country are really being devastated by this. I'm hearing female athletes saying, should I even bother getting involved in sports? Um, like the mental toll that, that it takes coming up against a biological male with a 10 to 50% performance advantage. Like if I can't win, why do I even try? And so I hope we're able to fix this quickly before more and more young women are deterred from even entering sports. So Chelsea, a question for you. It can be um, intimidating to think about being involved in a lawsuit, particularly from a teenager's perspective, I would imagine. You're at that point making a definitive stand on what's fair and what isn't fair. So can you tell us a little bit about what was the impetus for you? What was the last straw that initiated your participation in the suit? Right, so my senior year, um, it was the indoor season and um, you know, it was kind of getting down the wire for me. It was my last year competing. Um, and one of the biological males ran, I think, like the fourth fastest time in the country. Um, you know, I'd been ho holding out hope that, you know, maybe they wouldn't post such fast times. Maybe I could, you know, close the gap a bit. But um, seeing that really nothing had changed and that these athletes were going to continue to dominate sports um, in Connecticut for as long as they want, um, you know, I just had enough of it and I knew that my story was powerful and that if I spoke up that it would help inspire change. 
Now, the NCAA has essentially passed the buck and allowed all of the organizing sports affiliations to essentially determine their own rules on transgender athletic participation. And you've called that result disappointing. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing that none of these organizations are standing up for female in sports. I mean, we deserve a fair chance, just like our male counterparts do. And for them to just pass the responsibility away and not give us, um, you know, the fairness we deserve in sports is really cowardly. Um, let me ask you, Christy, there's a long bridge between running against a biological male and ending up in federal court. What steps did you take after this continued competition, realizing that she was having these titles and these awards taken from her? What steps did you take to try to rectify the situation before it got to the point of needing to file a federal lawsuit? Well, I asked so many people for help in the state of Connecticut. I spoke to you know, school administrators, you know, her coach, the athletic director, the principal, the superintendent. Then I went to the school board. I contacted state lawmakers. I spoke to um, the state of Connecticut's Title IX coordinator. I called the Office of Civil Rights in Boston and spoke with them. I um, met with the attorney general's office in Connecticut and the general counsel for our governor. I contacted everyone I could think of. I reached out to women's rights organizations, and that was a huge surprise that many kind of what you would think of as mainstream women's rights organizations, um, you know, even ones focused on sports, were not willing to help us. In fact, they put out a statement taking the opposite position in support of the other side of this point. So that was all surprising. But at the end of the day, um, you know, even if people were sympathetic or agreed with me, no one was willing to help us. No one was willing to stick their neck out or try and get the policy changed. And it was, it was defeating, it was frustrating to feel like as a mother you couldn't fix this. You know, I would tell Chelsea, you just focus on racing, I've got this. But let me, I'll take, you know, I'm working on it. You, know, you focus on racing and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't help her. What do you attribute the failure of the appropriate educational officials to get involved to? Why was there such a hesitation? And how did they respond to you when you made what I would have thought would be a very simple request? Um, it got to the point, obviously, where there was no other way except to proceed with the lawsuit. And in fact, in the previous Department of Education, a Title IX complaint and investigation was opened. That was reversed by the current administration, so there was no recourse there. So what were you given as the answer for why this was an acceptable policy and that they wouldn't make any action to change it? I was told all sorts of ridiculous things. Um, things like, you know, your daughter has the right to participate but not to win, and that Title IX did not protect that right. Um, I was told that, uh, you know, it was because of the state law that the athletic association had enacted the policy. Um, but then again, I was told by the state lawmakers that no, they could change the athletic policy to, to protect women. I was told by the governor's office that the state legislature should fix it. Everybody just wanted to pass the buck around and around. It was absolutely frustrating and maddening. Now, it's a unique distinction that I think bears pointing out because Chelsea's incredibly gifted, but we're not just talking about um, winning slots. We're not talking about championships or trophies or awards alone. What we're also talking about is the ability to even get on the field in the first place, because obviously these are teams that require a tryout. Junior varsity, varsity teams, and high school athletics that are publicly funded by so much as $1, as they are in college, are tryout only. So you also are looking at situations where students are being bumped from rosters on which they ordinarily would have had a slot because there are physiological advantages that can't conceivably be overcome. What words of wisdom do you have for other parents who are going through a situation like this as we see an increase in these state-level bills defining Title IX's own terms, understanding that the federal law is at present ceasing to protect them? For parents who are also in your situation state to state, what would you say? I would say speak up, 
speak up loudly. Um, don't listen to the ridiculous things that they might say to you. Don't take that as, um, you know, an actual answer and, and fight for the rights of your daughters and your granddaughters to have their own sports. They deserve it. Um, Title IX should protect that. And, and I would just say, stand up and fight. Christiana, let me ask you, from day one, one of his first executive orders from this administration was one, defining sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity, and instructing the heads of all federal agencies to reevaluate all of their anti-discrimination provisions on the basis of sex. We've seen sort of rulemaking pop up in a number of different formats, including most recently a Department of Health and Human Services. Title IX's rule, of course, the next to drop. But what are we looking at in terms of everyday implications for the redefinition of sex in federal law? Because it isn't just here in Title IX, it really is a broad-based application in every regulation that incorporates sex discrimination provisions. And I believe there are over a hundred of them. Right, right. Yes, as we saw the Biden administration issue those executive orders less than 24 hours after taking the oath of office, it really was a slap in the face to women to say that, well, now we're going to, in essence, try to erase you from the law and erase your private spaces and opportunities that have been specifically set aside for you. So yes, while the regulations that you mentioned drop today and we anticipate them having a reversal effect on the athletic opportunities for men and women, women especially, but we recognize that this goes beyond sports and the implications of reinterpreting biological sex to mean gender identity in federal law will have massive ramifications, especially for women across the country. In other areas, including privacy, women's domestic shelters and safe spaces, and even women's prisons, you know, the list goes on and on. And so it's it's incredibly frustrating as a woman to see this administration and activists attempt to really dehumanize women, you know, calling us labels like chest feeders and menstruators and other like dehumanizing language, and at the same time attempting to take away women's private spaces, athletic opportunities, and rights that are going to implicate their future career opportunities as well. So it's incredibly frustrating. I think it's something that ought to concern everyone and is something that everyone ought to be pushing back on. So at the time of its adoption, Title IX was considered largely a feminist triumph. Um, and it was sort of part of a series of legislative proposals that were advanced by Democratic female senators. Um, I think of Patsy Mink, for example, who was a large force at getting Title IX passed. Um, what do you anticipate is going to be sort of the next defensive move? Can we rely on the bipartisanness of sex as being biological reality to essentially unthread this Gordian knot in which we find ourselves? Well, I think it absolutely should be a bipartisan issue. This is something that the left and the right should be able to coalesce around. The definition of biological sex, the identity of women, their right to athletic opportunities, their right to their safe spaces, to their own separate prisons, and so forth. So it's been really encouraging to me to be able to link arms with women across the aisle, radical feminists um, and others, and say, we're going we're gonna to fight this battle together. And I think this is something that we ought to easily be able to coalesce around. And it is going to take a, a broad coalition and movement in order to be able to reverse policies from an activist administration and you know, a wimpy NCAA with lack of courage and cowardice. But we're already seeing an impact. I mean, the polling shows the American people do not think it's fair or safe for men to be in women's sports. We're seeing international governing bodies of sports already um, creating policies that offer greater and greater protection to female athletes. So I do think we're starting to see a turning of the tide, but we can't, we can't hold back on the momentum. Got to keep pushing forward. Chelsea, let me ask you a little bit about some of the public response to your particular stance on this. I know on May 22nd, you published an editorial in USA Today talking a little bit about your individual personal experience running against biological males. And on May 25th, it disappeared. And there was a disclaimer with an apology for using hateful language. What was that hateful language and what other fallout have you personally experienced? 
Right. Well, they didn't. They didn't ask me if they could change my article. They just did it um, without my permission. Um, they said that the word biological male was hateful, um, <laughs> and that I should be referring to these males as transgender athletes instead. Um, and I did get a lot of um, hate and pushback by peers, um, classmates. Um, but unfortunately, that was all you know behind their cell phone. So many people have um, been supportive of me, um, and that is what I like to focus on when I go through this. Do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better, in your estimation, someone who is truly there at the ground level as an athlete and as a woman? Well, I think with what the Biden administration is doing right now, it's kind of going downhill. But um, in terms of our case, I think we have gotten so much more support recently. Um, when it first came out, I think people were weary of it and we're kind of, you know, on different sides, but I think there's been kind of a, um, you know, uptick in like all the support that we've been getting. So many people have kind of come around to our side and are now defending us, which I think is really good. Chrissy, let me ask you, the first time that your daughter competed in a race and that was sort of a defining moment, I would imagine, as a mother, how did you feel when you saw her on the field against biological males? What was your initial reaction? I don't know. You feel a lot of emotions. You're, you're angry, number one, and because it shouldn't be happening. There's absolutely no reason why in the world you would put a male athlete at the line with, I mean, she was 14 at the time, with a 14-year-old girl. And it was a stark contrast between Chelsea and the biological male that was in that race. Um, she was young and it was so, it was, I was angry and I was upset and I was felt sorry for her that she was going through that. And I, I hated how disrespectful it was. I, I use that word because that's what it is. The fact that all of those officials there that day running that track meet knew that it was wrong and yet they were ignoring it. They were pretending like there was nothing amiss, that there was nothing wrong with what was happening. And they let it happen, and they told those girls that they needed to just be quiet, not say anything, be a good sport, um, and that was just so wrong. And so it was horrible to watch, and that was the first time. She ran it against biological males in more than 20 races over the course of those four years. And every time I watched it, it was just, sickening and it, it made you kind of upset right in your stomach and um, and it wasn't even just the ones that Chelsea was in like so many girls in Connecticut she lost four state championships but you know that happened 15 times lots of different girls in Connecticut lost state championships and lots of girls were bumped out of finals and were bumped out of the chance to advance to the New England meet and it happened over and over and over again, and they all just stood there and let it happen. Chelsea, I've asked your mom what she would tell other parents who have children involved in a situation like this, but what would you tell other female athletes who themselves find themselves in a situation in which they're up against biological males? What encouragement would you give them? I would tell them to speak up. I mean, now we have, you know, so many um, amazing girls from different states on these different lawsuits, and um, there are so many people that are now supporting us. It might have been scary at first, but um, it gets better, and the support, um, the support we've gotten, um, you know, it, it is scary, but, um, like, you can do it. Like, I've done it. It was hard at first, but it's great now, and... Um, the more of us that there are, the, the quicker this is going to get fixed. Christiana, let me ask you a little bit about the Bostock versus Clayton County decision. I have referenced it a sickening number of times. I'm sure my colleagues are tired of hearing me talk about it, but it is the basis, the foundation upon which so much of the agency actions rely. And remember, that was the opinion from two years ago at the Supreme Court, interpreting Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include sex discrimination's prohibitions also on sexual orientation and gender identity. It's been purported and advanced by this administration as the foundation upon which their other rulemaking transpires. But there are some unique limitations in the, in the Bostock decision. So talk a little bit about why that decision does not apply. 
Well, I think you already answered that question in part by just simply giving the background of the case. It arose in the employment context. And the Supreme Court justices were very clear in the majority opinion that this was unique to Title VII, that they were only addressing the federal employment context in that particular decision, and they were going to leave other contexts for another day, including locker rooms and bathrooms. And of course, most pertinently here, sports and athletics. Again, we all know that the reason that Title IX exists is because they recognize that there are physical differences between the sexes. This is one of the situations where it is important that we do recognize those physical differences. They have an impact on not just women's privacy, but their ability to compete as well. And so the whole impetus for this federal law was part of the impetus for the regulations especially, uh, but the impetus for the federal law was to give women educational opportunities and it has come to be synonymous with women's athletic opportunities in part because we recognize that women are physically different than men. And if we want a future where women can achieve and be recognized for their accomplishments on the sporting field, then we have to have a separate women's category. As sort of further support for the fact that the incentive behind Title IX's passage was truly the inequality in American education between men and women. A federal judge in Connecticut in 1971 said, athletics build character in our boys that we don't need in our girls. And of course, with that, the feminist majority, and I would argue rightly so, decided that a piece of legislation would be appropriate. It's in an exceedingly short statute, mm -hmm. only a few words, probably one of the most impactful but briefest of all the American civil rights laws. And it was truly a response to the fact that women had been relegated to otherness within educational context. Graduate programs were not open to women. Athletics were not open to women. And so it's achieved so much for us that we find ourselves scratching our heads as to why suddenly it needs modification to include gender identity protections. My question, and this is one on which I would love your perspective, what happens when there are battling Title IX complaints? One from an individual who identifies as a woman because he's not able to compete on a particular track team, or one from a biological woman for whom an individual whose gender identity conflicts on that team, when you have competing claims of discrimination, doesn't that lead us sort of on the trail to madness? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> does. And this is the conundrum that the Biden administration is creating with these new Title IX regulations that they have promised. But all we have to do is go back to the statute. Let's go back to the actual terms of the statute and protecting women on the basis of sex and men on the basis of their sex will lead to fair and equitable competition. We have a female protected sex category. The males have the opportunity to compete and succeed in their category, women in their own, and everyone will basically receive the purpose and promise of Title IX and have that delivered. And the alternative is to open every athletic endeavor to a co-ed team, which the federal regulations okay. anticipate mm -hmm. are a sufficient option. That also is an option. But for decades now, we've recognized the opportunities to advance because men and women are biologically different. So we're going to open it up to some questions right now. And uh, we'll be taking questions both from the audience, but also we'll be moderating questions that are coming in from online. Yes. And we have a microphone for you, too, so we can make sure to hear what you have to say. Thanks so much for coming. Um, my question is about how would you advise the female swimmers at University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, who were apparently warned by the school administration that they better not speak up about having Leah Thomas on the team. So in that case, they're having not only their comp competition rights violated, but their free speech rights violated. I mean, I would tell, I know a lot of them are speaking anonymously. Um, I would say there's power behind a face and behind a personality. Um, if they have stories to tell, they should speak up and tell it publicly. Um, I know it can be scary, especially um, with their administrators not supporting them, but there's so many people that, that will support them. 
You know, it's interesting. The Leah Thomas um, situation at UPenn has really put a fine point on the actual athletic debate. And it could have been that such a catalyst is part of the reason that the Biden administration has indicated there will be future rulemaking separately in athletics. Though at this point, after 50 years, I'm not sure it's possible to gut that out and then still leave all the remaining claims of discrimination. But for an individual who's competed as a very middle of the pack male, 462nd in the country in swimming, to suddenly after a year of hormone therapy, crush the 500 meter freestyle in the women's NCAA division one championship is untenable. I think it is part of the reason that this is an issue around which individually the American public is beginning to coalesce and say, guys, it's, it's gone too far. Other questions, either online or from the audience. Chelsea, let me ask you, what is next for you? What's your next phase of life holding? You're now in college? Yes, I'm um, running collegiately in college. Excellent. And have you encountered any of the same battles, any of the same struggles in college that you have at the high school level? I have not um, raced against any biological males in college, but you know, with the rules of the NCAA, um, that could easily just happen as they've left it to each one of the governing bodies. So of course, that is a possibility at any time. What would you like to tell the administration if you had five minutes of time with the leaders at Department of Ed and in the White House? I mean, I would tell them that what they're doing is very anti-women. Um, they're not protecting our rights. Um, you know, I lived through this. It's, it's not, it's discrimination against women. It's telling us that our bodies are not good enough to keep up with a male body. Um, and that they need to take a stand and protect females. Christiana, let me ask you, as the department proceeds with the rulemaking process, which is an arduous process, um, as somebody who's been through it, I can tell you it is exceptionally arduous. The last Title IX iteration, the new rule that came out from the previous administration, dates to 2020, but it took the administration a year and a half mm -hmm. to come up with it, and we considered 124,000 public comments. So this could potentially be a long road. Are you hopeful that the public's response to a manipulation of longstanding federal civil rights law might be enough to slow the entire process and give them sort of food for thought about the impact that it's going to have? I wish. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I'm terribly hopeful about that, to be quite frank. I think they, the activists have their ear. And they are moving, uh, again, consistent with an, an activist position, a transgender ideology, rather than standing with female athletes and listening to their voices. Um, but I will say that they do have a hard road ahead just in the sense that the regulations they're attempting to promulgate are contrary to the federal law that they attempt to interpret. And so we certainly do anticipate that there will be ample litigation and we will you know, attempt to have that remedied. And, but Again, ultimately, the goal here is to ensure that we have fairness and safety for female athletes, whatever form that ends up taking. Questions? Yes. This is for online. Um, what does our future look like in America in terms of competing identities between males and females? Do you, the panel, foresee this issue leaking into other categories? That is a tremendous question. I'm going to let you all take a crack at that, and then I have a perspective on this as well. Well, I would say I'm, there, we're already seeing in different states um, a, quite a bit of confusion. Uh, we're not just talking in terms of identifying as the opposite sex, but what about individuals who identify as non-binary? What about those who you know, claim to be on a spectrum? We were in depositions and they indicated at one point that there are hundreds and hundreds of gender identities. How does one regulate athletics if you have hundreds and hundreds of identities that are, are not being served by the male and the female category. So this is, it's an untenable position. The only categories that make sense in the context of athletics are male and female because bodies are involved in sports, not an individual's identity. And so again, I, I think this is why Title IX has been very clear from the outset. This is why we have women's sports as a separate category, has nothing to do with how an individual person identifies. I think there's a place for everyone in sports. The question is, where is it most fair? And we've, we've drawn those lines pretty clearly for the last 50 years, and it served women well. 
And we, we've got to continue to maintain those clear categories if we want women to continue to achieve in that area. Chelsea and Christy, do you think that this is a bit of a slippery slope? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I think that, you know, it's been um, for us, we've been very focused on the sports issue, but obviously this is overall a very big problem. You can't just, um, you know, take away all of the different aspects of life where we, you know, women require, um, you know, separate spaces and privacy based on our biological sex. And so I think that, like Christiana said, it's, um, it's ridiculous really actually to be um, basing sports on an identity. That's not, it doesn't make any sense. Chelsea, do you agree with your mom's analysis or response on that? Yeah, I mean, women deserve their um, safe spaces and we deserve the equal opportunities that men have. So I think a lot of people believe that Title IX stands alone, but it does have intersection with other, other federal anti-discrimination anti law. One of those particular intersections is in Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, which is also engaging in a rulemaking process at present, while rescinding what was colloquially known as the conscience rule. Now, the impact of that, and it incorporates directly by reference Title IX's anti-discrimination definition based on sex is to force acquiescence and adherence to a perspective on gender identity that those in the medical community who are impacted by Title IX, they are at programs and hospitals at facilities that accept that funding will no longer be able to say it's against my religious conscience to perform gender transition surgery or for example it is for me, a violation of my Hippocratic Oath, to remove the opportunity to dissent at all, to force a towing of the line, for example, automatically sets up other civil rights battle royales, as it were, and we're seeing the implications of that as well. Another implication is Title IX's sort of hidden heckler's veto. We've seen in past contexts individuals who were in named in federal Title IX complaints strictly because they believed that sex was immutable and biology determines sex and the failure to adhere to a gender identity notion has named those individuals in Title IX complaints. I give you three eighth grade boys in public school in Wisconsin who have just been named in a federal complaint for uh, misgendering one of their classmates. I have a seventh grade boy and an 11th grade boy, and I can tell you right now, getting them to say anything you want them to say, it's hard, but now they are named in a federal Title IX complaint. So Marguerite, to answer the question of the listener online, it will have impacts that we have only yet begun to chip away at. Other questions? Uh, so let me just say that uh, I think I know the definition. I'm not a woman, but <laughs> thank you for your advocacy on behalf of women. Um, and my question, we were speaking earlier before the uh, presentation with someone from Mexico, someone from Venezuela, and someone from Russia. And we all said that it, this is a very, it seems to be a very uniquely American phenomenon. Is that something you'd agree with, or have we seen this in other countries as well? That's a great question. I, I can say just in my research and work in this particular space with American civil rights law, there is not a similar push to expand categories of civil rights protection based on a definition that has always been understood to mean one thing. And in fact, the Supreme Court has called these immutable characteristics, those by accident of birth, about which we have no choice one way or the other. In fact, they've identified in civil rights law and other contexts race, ethnicity, national origin, sex. So very often sex will appear with other immutable categories because it uniquely stands alone in Title IX. I think this is potentially fruit ripe for the picking from this administration. Seeing this as sort of a definition for them, a moment in time where they have the opportunity to force that particular definition into multiple other aspects. I've not seen the international community respond the same way America has with such an aggressive push toward an expanded definition. I don't know if you all would agree with that as well. In the back, yes. Yeah, so I was just wondering, um, 
if you suggest, I've heard of female athletes boycotting races um, when they have to compete against biological males. I was just asking if the panel would suggest they compete against those biological males still, um, or if they should just boycott the races. I think that's a bold statement for sure. Um, you know, in high school, it, it's kind of hard because if you don't compete at the state meet or the um, state open meet, you cannot qualify for the next higher level of competition. Um, you also, if you decide not to race in those races, you won't get faster times. You won't be able to display those to college coaches. While this was already, um, you know, hurt, harming female athletes and that it was um, hurting our college um, recruitment, um, you know, deciding not to race in those races would also do that. And I'm sure, you know, at the collegiate level, racing in national championships, you want to you want to race in those races. You don't want to miss your opportunity. So while, so while it's a good idea, I think it's um, kind of lost on that. We have about five minutes left. Other questions? Yes, I saw one right in front here. Um, something that really stood out to me was um, when you said um, someone was saying that, you know, sports teaches men very important characters, uh, characters for life that are not necessary for women. And something you said was um, how they're referring to women as breastfeeders or menstruators. Um, and I think that really hurts women's human dignity. So if this is a applied across society, this redefinition of what it means to be a woman. In 50 years' time, if the, the left succeeds with that, what do you think the world would look like referencing um, women's human dignity and kind of the role in society and in the family? I'll take a crack at it and I'll, I'll pass it over to Christiana. I will say that the minute you start to fiddle with the plain and ordinary meaning of terms, when you take it upon yourself to redefine terms, we have always, from time immemorial, recognized to be men and women. There is no place to go but down. Um, and we've already seen similarly aggressive rulemaking transpire in other federal agencies, including Department of Justice, including HHS, now a Department of Education. I think when we stand to do that, there is no end to the numbers of categories of sub-protected groups and more protected groups. We do set up battles on non-immutable characteristics, right? So we take that decision, those decisions from the Supreme Court that have reinforced equal protection as being based on those accidents of birth. Those are individuals who can't make a choice one way or the other. Then I think we stand really to complicate not only American federal lawmaking, but the way we are understood to operate with our international partners as well. And when I think about what the future would look like 10, 20 years down the road, I think it's an amplification of what we're already seeing glimpses of right now. So it's more Chelsea's who are being denied the opportunity to compete, their rightful place. I think it's young women who decide why bother even competing in sports because I'm not gonna win anyway. So why would I put in the hard work, the countless hours to train? I think it's, we're seeing more and more women who are crying out from prison after being forced to be housed with a biological male. We're, you know, we're hearing uh, reports of and instances of rape in, that, in those contexts. We represent uh, a women's homeless shelter and a biological male demanded to sleep alongside vulnerable women who had been you know, trafficked and abused by biological men. And so I think if this is allowed to proliferate, we're going to see more and more of these types of dehumanizing instances uh, and harms to women. Women and girls are the ones who are going to suffer most, but I think it's dehumanizing for all of us. One more question and then we get a wrap. Yeah, uh, so sort of speaking about um, kind of the, the rules changes that are going on, uh, you know, FINA, the governing body uh, for, for swimming, sort of recently uh, released some, some restrictions and they sort of saw the cutoff uh, at, at puberty and said, oh, well, you know, anybody that has a transition by that point where you're not allowed to com uh, compete. Do you think that's sort of a, a sufficient uh, regulation uh, that that's sort of, you know, defending uh, women's rights in sports? Or do you think that instead it sort of, you know, provides some perverse incentives to begin the, the transitioning process far earlier uh, than, you know, children are really able to comprehend? I'm happy to, chat, to talk about that. So I think any attempt to protect the female category in sport is a, is a step in the right direction. But I have very serious concerns about the, this particular approach because they would be pushing children towards irreversible medical procedures and off-label use of drugs. And as you say, 
um, asking them to make decisions that they are not yet fully able to comprehend the full implications of. Frankly, the scientific community does not yet fully appreciate all the implications of what that is doing to vulnerable young children. So I have very serious concerns about that approach. I think the correct approach is to say we must protect the female category, period, end of statement. I 100% agree with that. I would, I would think it's, it is good, but not good enough. And we know that there is not enough longitudinal data on these particular gender transition treatments, whether it is off-label use of hormone or puberty blockers, or whether or not it's irreversible surgical intervention. There just isn't data to support it. My son cannot get a Tylenol at school without the nurse calling and asking permission because his agency is not sufficient to let him know exactly what the risks and benefits of utilizing that medication are for. And so to that end, I do believe it would probably rashly so incentivize medical providers to toe the line earlier before the full stage of puberty kicks in, but that's not a solution, it's a Band-Aid. I have to wrap it up. We have a hard stop for our guests here who have a very busy day ahead of them, but I wanna thank you all for joining us today for our event, Title Line in the Crosshairs. We will be archiving this podcast online. You can share it with your friends. And once the final rule is published, both Alliance Defending Freedom and Heritage Foundation will be publishing the comment portal so you too can let your voices be heard on this new rule. Thanks for coming.